You're listening to Shane O on the radio, which is a niche media production. Any and all unauthorized use or broadcast of the material contained herein will be in breach of copyright. The Call of the Faraway Hills. That's the name of the tune. And it's our theme tune on this uh, podcast series. We're now into our 22nd podcast, can you believe it? And we're also now into August, which is even more shocking. But uh, this year has been weird. Very strange. But it has led to the formation of a thing called Keeler 1930, which is slowly but surely making its way into the public domain. Certainly via this podcast series where we're meeting some of the greats of the game and celebrating their careers. And this one is from the archive, but a welcome addition to the Keeler 1930 Clubhouse. All five foot four and a half inches of him, a pocket rocket who burst onto the scene in the 70s on the European tour, struggled to get on to the main tour, went to the tour school many times, lived in camper vans. Hung out with these friends as they all kind of shared the dream of making it as touring professionals. But he always had a big ambition to be one of the best players in the world. Such was his own inner belief and confidence. And he made it happen. He scaled the highest peaks. He was world number one. He was the Masters champion in 1991. He was elected into the World Golf Hall of Fame. Not before time. In late 2017. And won the Irish Open at Port Marnock, defeating Philip Walton in a playoff in 1989. But he's won all around the world and was a Ryder Cup hero. And when I sat down to talk to him, I actually ended up joining him for lunch, along with his business manager, his best friend, and some other friends as well from his golfing life. And it was a pure joy to spend time with the great Ian Woosnam. So this is, if you can just picture the scene, a Saturday afternoon, it's the Masters Tournament in 2017. He has narrowly missed the cut. Now bear in mind, it is 26 years since he had won the uh, green jacket, but there he was anyway, wearing said green jacket and settling down for a bit of a chat, a little bit of lunch. And it turned into excellent banter. In actual fact, he got a little bit emotional towards the end. So this is a really nice chat with Ian Woosnam. Access Augusta, and it's a moving day here at uh, the Masters Tournament for 2017. And it's absolutely beautiful. And the world of golf is gathered here on the lawn outside the back of the clubhouse. Uh, We're sitting down with some very special people. Uh, David Barlow has been managing one of Europe's greatest golfers for a long, long time. DJ Russell is chairman of the European Senior Tour. He's on the board of the European Tour. He's a multiple winner on the European Tour. And he's a great friend of our very special guest, the man who won this championship, this tournament, if you will, in 1991. And the memories are obviously very vivid because you're, I'm sure, reminded of it, Ian Woosnam, but... 
How special is it to come back here year after year and to don this green jacket which you are wearing right now? Well, it's unbelievable. You come back every single year, you know, as I'm getting older now, expectations are gone a little bit, but still trying to make the cut and uh, still trying to play a little bit. And uh, But as you, walk, as you drive down Magnolia Lane, it's just very special because you see the front of the clubhouse, but you don't know what's behind the clubhouse. And when you... You come, you come the golf, the golf course side, and then you just see it, and it's like, this is the sort of place I want to be when, I, when I go to heaven. You know what I mean? I just want to be playing this golf course for the rest of my life. So, when was the first opportunity to play this for you? I think it was '88, the first opportunity I played, and uh, although I played very well in '87, didn't manage to get an invite because there was the very scarce in them days. Only four on the Europe, European tour tour at them times but uh, yeah managed to get an 88 so uh, a very special moment to be able to play I think Sandy Sandy Lyle my best friend as a golfer growing up was uh, he won that year hitting that shot out of the bunker on the 18th and then all in the putt great year that was how inspirational was that for you given the the journey that you'd taken but by 1988 you know you were a leading light on the European tour a multiple winner but uh, you know the major was what it was all about the first major yeah, you know, obviously the first few years I played, but 91 I was having a special special year. I had a special year in 87, but then it came to 91 I was playing fantastic. I think in in January or, or February at my own club in Australia, I shot a 59 going around, a 57 going around, and I missed a load of putts as well. How many under par is 57 on that it, course? It, it was 13 under par, and so I finished with three pars, missed them all from t- <laughs> 10 foot on the last three holes and missed it from two foot on the tenth hole so special I knew I was playing well I'd won a couple of tournaments I won in I won uh, in New Orleans and I came to the Masters in 91 and uh, on the Monday morning I became world number one as well I think that was special as well and went out there with a little bit more confidence and you know could stick my chest out a little bit and you know I was getting to the stage where I needed to to win a major tournament because you know you, you, you're starting to get the reputation when are I going to win one and uh, if I was going to win one win a tournament this is where I was going to win it Did you feel that the Masters tournament was one that suited you and your game? Absolutely I think it was more about you know you had to get it on the green you had to get it in the right place it wasn't so much about putting you had to play put good but you had to get it in the right place and you know I was, my irons were I was with my irons I was getting the ball onto the right places on the green and you know, you're going to two putt or you're going to hold a putt uh, in them situations. Well, there are so many memories from it. Um, but just to bring in the other fine gentlemen that are with us here at the table under the beautiful umbrellas on this roasting hot Saturday where I think some low scores is going to be uh, the order of the day. But uh, DJ, uh, Ian mentioned briefly 1988. Obviously, Sandy was a, a big victory here. Um, you finished very high up at the Open Championship that year. Uh, at Royal Lytham when Sebi came through for his what turned out to be his final major um, when did you first come across Ian Rosen? I suppose it was back it was it late 70s early 80s we uh, we both bumped into each other in the Monday qualifyings we <laughs> we were sort of specialists at qualifying on a Monday and then playing very badly on a Thursday and Friday to have to qualify the next week so uh, it was just we were seem to be the ones still left standing after the Monday qualifying, so we got to travel together a bit and got to know each other really well. 
Like this was how tough it was. Uh, like there was nothing easy in those days. But I presume it just kind of um, brought a, a real sense of spirit amongst you guys. You became like a band of brothers. It was a, a shared experience. And times were tough back then, and you know you couldn't afford a whole lot. Yeah, it was a strange one, really, because I suppose, although we wanted the money, we didn't. We weren't really doing it for the money. There wasn't fortunes to be made then. It was more just we loved golf and we just wanted to be professional golfers somehow. So we just travelled around and got the clubs out, and that was it. It was really a, a unique time, which will never be the same again. Really now. The rewards are so much more in modern golf. People play it probably for different reasons than we played it for just for the love of playing and competing. Um, you're, you're a proven winner on the tour. You know, the, your record is excellent. But what separates someone of your standing with someone like the man on my right who went on to have, I think, 29 victories on the <coughs> European Tour, a couple of victories on the PGA Tour, and around the world yeah well if you count them all up with the, all sorts of wins it's, 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 and, the, and the seniors it comes to 52 which is you know for a guy from a little golf course in Oswald Street Lanamanic and uh, you know if you look back and never thought that would happen and uh, pretty special thing what did he have DJ uh, the first I, I played a lot of golf with him in, in practice rounds and everything, but he had a, an incredible determination. And one little story from way back time in Zambia. We were sat around a, a table having dinner with our hosts, and there was I think there was maybe half a dozen of us players around the table. And the, the hosts sort of went around the table and said, well, what would you like to achieve in golf? And went around the table and somebody said well, I'd like to win a tournament and somebody else said I'd like to win a few quid and have a nice house and everything and Ian and at the time in fairness to Ian he'd not exactly broken through at that stage he was <laughs> back at tour school and everything uh, he said I want to win majors be world number one and a multi-millionaire and we all just fell about laughing but he was des- he was desperately serious that that was something that was just in him that separated him from us the determination and he worked very hard very hard your hands used to get calluses ridiculous didn't they in those days we smoked so he used to put the cigarettes out on the calluses to get them (laughs) down a bit this is the big question now before I talk to your long term manager but how does a 5 foot 4 and a half inch Welshman from a farm in Wales, become world number one, win majors, and win all around the world, and now is looking at the um, prospect of being in, inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame, where only legends reside. Well, I think it, it all becomes, I think, what DJ just explained it exactly, and uh, obviously I was, uh, only being five foot four, four, I was very, very strong. And I had a golf swing which suited my my size and everything. And uh, but as DJ says, it's all about what you want to achieve. Do you want to go halfway up the mountain, or do you want to go all the way up the top of the mountain? And I only wanted to go to the top of the mountain. So when a guy said to me at my golf course, he says when I was about ten years old, he said, 
now, young Woosnam, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? I said, I want to be a professional golfer. I want to be the best player in the world. I want and win majors. And he just laughed at me and said, you'll have to grow a little bit. And I thought, I'll show you. That famous quote when Sandy Lyle, who you played in Shropshire with, I mean, Sandy is, has been described as Seve Ballesteros, as being the greatest of the, the lot of you in terms of striking. You may, may dispute this, but Sandy was an enormous talent, and he was big, but he was a natural. And he, you know, when he would, when he would beat you, uh, you didn't like it, but you said to him famously one day, can you repeat the quote? Well, I'll beat you one day, Sandy Lal. That was my mother's. T- yeah, I'll beat you one day, and that happened in the world match play. And we're playing in 1987, and it'd be the first one who ever wins uh, the the world match play at Wentworth, and managed to beat my school he- school friend, and and who we played together all our lives. But what I will say is that if I didn't have someone like Sandy Lyle, I don't think I'd be in my in my situation now with that in- enormous ball striking. The quality is that his father taught him how to play the game of golf, and that fetched my game on, and a lot of other players with it. And uh, I knew what standard I need to be at at 15 years of age. And uh, he dragged me along, and he dragged a lot of people on as well. And you know, I owe a lot to Sandy. But uh, it's uh, and it's great to have a little sort of like we live 20 miles from each other, and we played with each other as teammates, and we both won the Masters. And you said him, said to him, like, one day I'm going to beat you, Sandy Lyle. And look at you now, you're in your green jacket. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's phenomenal. David, when did you first uh, see and uh, get to know him? Well, I, I worked for one of the largest sports management companies, and I was lucky enough to be allocated in as a client in about 1987. So I came to the Masters in 88, and obviously 91 was a special year. It was a special year because in that last round... I was walking back to the clubhouse. Ian had driven off the 18th, off the 18th tee, and I was walking back down the side, the left of 18, and he suddenly, this ball shot past our ears, and Ian had decided that in order to take the trouble out, he'd go right left, he'd go straight left, and that's what he did. He missed all the crowds, and basically they spent probably 10, 15 minutes trying to move everybody away from the side of the green so Ian could chip on to hit the second shot on. And it, it, was a magic, it was a magic year. You know, as an agent, as a manager and uh, as a friend, and obviously it's for a, a long period now, you know, what was it about Ian that people liked and how good was he for business and certainly after winning that first major? Well, he, Ian was really the people's champion. He was the guy that, you know, people could have a drink with, have a chat with, have a laugh with. There were no airs and graces. He was the local lad from Shropshire, from Oslo Street, and that's how he was, and and that's how everybody, that's how everybody took to him. And you'll find around the world that everybody's got a story about Wuzzy, because he is that sort of guy, and that makes it easy to market. You know, because you can always have a good time, and you know, at the end of the day, if you have a golf day, he'll do everything he can to make everybody happy. And I'll say this right now: if you go, you talk to all his peers, and you will find that they know they've always had help off Wuzzy. He walked down the practice ground and they'd say, Wuzzy, can you have a look at this? Or Wuzzy would say, let me just show you something. And that would be, that's Wuzzy. Wuzzy, with regard to the playing of the game, I mean, you know, you're, you're, you have a natural talent, but there's a determination there as well. But when it came to swing and swing mechanics, 
Like, how did you maintain it yourself, and how did you keep that wonderful fluid action going? And obviously, you've got those very, very powerful forearms. Well, when I started playing at the very beginning, about seven or eight years of age, my my father took me. It's a great little story. This is he took me to see this uh, retired professional from Royal Liverpool Golf Clubs, and his name was Cyril Hughes, and he just moved from uh, Hoylake Golf Club, Royal Liverpool Golf Course, to uh, to uh, to uh, to Lunnamunnock, which was my first course I started playing. Fifteen holes in Wales, three three holes in England, and he gave me the basics of the golf swing: right elbow in, get me the grip, got the grip right, you know, and basically keep your right elbow in, turn your back to the target, turn your chest to the target. And I've kept that all my life. I've seen some great coaches in my life, the great John Jacobs. I remember we went to the Young Players School in Jersey. DJ was there with me. And uh, we were all on the line, hitting balls into the sea at uh, Royal Jersey Golf Club. And Mr. Jacobs come to see me and I said, what do you think, Mr. Jacobs, of this swing? He said, lad, just keep swinging. Don't change anything at all. And he didn't do anything for me. But the one thing I did learn from Mr. Jacobs was that the ball never lies. And whatever shape, whichever way it shapes or, or starts, and that's the way you swing the golf club. And that's you know, if it starts left, low, and slices, you've come over the top and hit it out of the neck. You know, and if you can learn them sort of values of the golf swing, you can fix your swings on the fix, fix your swing on the golf course. Just keep it simple and uh... simple. Turn, turn. Yeah. You know, keep your head still. And you know, everybody thinks. It, but for me, the golf swing is a. Open the door, shut the door. It's a circle. It's not square to square. Did you? Can you talk about the friendship? You know, and the development of the friendship, and obviously coming to the Masters here every year. I mean, you know, you guys are like joined at the hip, and you've collaborated on many, many things. But there's a, there's a deep friendship between the pair of you. Yeah, I think it's really just the fact that we, our ambitions were similar. His were a lot deeper than mine, um, but. We, we, we got on really well we could bounce stuff off each other and I, I don't think we've ever really fallen out which is amazing when you know, this was, was such a strong character but I think we've, we've always gone pretty well so it's just been a, a great relationship we don't see each other for six, seven months on end but we're just pals when we get back together so it is it's, it's a very good friendship yeah uh, what's the crack like, though, here at, at the Masters? I mean, what's the routine? What's the ritual? What, what way do you plan it? Or, you know, what's it like being out here together? Well, for me, obviously, the last 12 years, I suppose, I've come here. And it's very difficult for Ian because he still plays and wants to do well. So the determination's there. So we can't quite relax and enjoy it out. I'd probably like to, but uh, we have to tiptoe around him on a Wednesday night and a Thursday night normally. But it's. Uh, oh, what about the Friday then? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm obviously not going to make the cut. <laughs> well, just this week because of the way things evolved. But I mean, what was it like out there? I mean, was what, what, what was the course playing from your perspective? I mean, because you're still playing great golf. Well, you know, the first two days are very difficult, cold, windy. Uh, very difficult. You have to get good, good iron shots, and you know, for the the two days I played fantastic. Really, like I think I had level par on putts again. If I'd have, if I'd have been anything under par with putting, I'd have been still playing this weekend. 
but that's been the case for the last few years. But this course is all about ball striking, really, and uh, I think that's why you'll see the, the top guys up there at the moment because they're striking the ball the best. But, but out there, it was one of the two toughest days that I've ever I've seen out at Augusta because you just didn't know how the ball was going to stand up in the wind or go through the wind, especially on the 12th hole. And uh, so, you know, it's, it is like we've got now, we're into Saturday. Uh, it's beautiful weather, the, the wind's down. And as you say, I think the, there's going to be some good scores today. I think uh, from my point of view, this year Ian's played a lot better in the respect that he's playing the champions to him more, he's getting more competitive. So unfortunately, his short game didn't quite take the very quick greens, but from tee to green... He played with a couple of young players, James Hahn, and was not outshadowed in any way distance-wise or playing, whereas potentially in a few previous years they were hitting a long way past you, weren't they? He's he's definitely up in his game as he's approaching 60. So Faldo is... uh, Sir Nick Faldo is going to turn 60 in July, uh, this Sunday, uh, tomorrow. Uh, Seve Ballesteros would have been 60 years of age and he contributed so much to world golf but to this tournament you know he won it twice uh, do you, how much do you miss Seve? Yeah the character of Seve the, the influence of what he put on the game and, his, and that big smile you know I always said he was like the Elvis Presley, Presley of golf you know and I think uh, that character he always had some charisma going on and you know it is sad and to have, to have someone with that an enormous uh, 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 charisma. charisma and everything for the game of golf. It, it's sad he can't be here sitting here with his green jacket on and enjoying what he should be doing. Yeah. So he was a unique talent, DJ. I mean, you, you knew him for a long time. You saw the evolution of Seve and the, the vibrant nature of his personality. He was a tough cookie, but a genius. Absolute genius. He... Uh, I think he was the inspiration behind the, the big six or whatever they like to call it because he proved to everybody that we could take on the world and we were lucky enough that he didn't really want to play in America, he wanted to play the majors but he, he was a bit of a homeboy so he played in Europe and we were able to play against him week in week out and then he'd come over here and tear it apart and suddenly the confidence grew with Sandy Lyle, with Fowder, with Wuzzy, with everybody that, hang on a minute, we can t- we, he beats us quite a bit, but we can play at that level. And so he, I think he would really... Jacqueline started it off a bit in the early 70s, but Seve broke the barriers of the American domination. He could possibly have won more than two. Obviously, he was a real contender here, but I, I mentioned to... Um, Nick Faldo, when I interviewed him on Wednesday, I think it was, or Tuesday, about that famous David Cannon photo which was taken outside the front, you know, when it really was a celebration of European domination and talent. And to be numbered amongst them, there was only 11 months separating five of you, Langer and Seve and Nick and Sandy and Ian Woosnam and, of course, Jose Maria Olatabal joined that grouping mm. and... Um, Great, great times and a great, great photo and a great memory, I suppose, to have. Unbelievable. I've got that photograph. That'll never, that'll never, never go away. And I think, you know, as I said, like with Sandy, he dragged me along 
and I think Sebi dragged us along as well and we all had these ambitions and once we've seen Sebi win, well, why can't we win? And uh, I'll tell you a little story about Sebi. Uh, first time I played with him in 1983 and it was in, in Town in Leeds and said hello to him on the first tee. We set off and we played nine holes and I get after nine holes I'm, I'm, I'm marking his card and I've scored 30, 35-1 under par and I, and I look at Seve's card and he's scored 34 and I think, Jesus, how's this guy beat me on the nine holes? Like, he's only hit two greens and had two birdies and he's chipped and put the rest. And, and that was one of the greatest experiences I ever had because it, it's, there's no pictures on the scorecard. It's all about how can you get it into the hole? And he was the greatest, greatest person for me to learn how to... Uh, it's not on about hitting the golf ball perfect. It's about how you score 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 on a golf course. You mentioned you know just this incredible period, obviously with this major success and successes, but to have all these green jackets. But there was a period, DJ. I mean, you you know you were on the board of the European Tour and chairman of the Senior Tour, but very few guys were getting the nod to play in this uh, tournament back in the day and it was very hard to come here even if you were like maybe high up in what were the kind of general world rankings without the official world ranking rankings kind of coming into play in, in sort of 86 or whatever and now to see 11 Englishmen you know lining up in the Masters tournament at the beginning of the week and so many Europeans so many internationals it's about time, but uh, is it going to get better, or you know, are, are you frustrated at how bad it was for such a long period? Well, I think it was just the nature of, of the fact that American golf dominated for such a long time, and the world, America was the, the nucleus of the world golfers, and, and suddenly these brilliant golfers all got together and gradually broke down the barriers, so gave the European Tour, the opportunity to create more invitations for people, to create that the world rankings have had a massive effect on how many people play. And that, that, that's an important thing going forward in golf, the world rankings is keeping, because the, the, the sort of rank from different tours is making sure that you know it's, everybody gets fair opportunity to get points for the world ranking. But I... I'm envious. I would have liked to have played in more majors. I did had a reasonable career, but I'm pleased that the barriers have been broken now. So that if you're a decent European tour player, your opportunity to play in majors is massive. Whereas before, it just wasn't. David. Yeah, no. It was very difficult in those days because you. It, it, the Europeans had a draw to play in Europe, and they wanted to support their own tour. They also wanted to have a crack in America. And getting those invites was very difficult. It was the same with... And, and in order to do that, you had to win majors. And suddenly we had, you know, five major double champions. It, they were just doing everything. And it was the same playing in Japan, Australia. As Europeans, you had to win majors. And that's how they progressed it. And then we developed that. And obviously, we ride a cup in 85 at the Belfry, took the trophy back. And... So, you know, it, it was tough, but you know they made it, and that was the key. Uh, just to wrap up, um, what Ian has achieved, and to finally now get recognised by the World Golf Hall of Fame, you know, because that's a hard one to crack sometimes, to be, yeah. no matter how great you are. Um, what does it mean to you as uh, this long-term manager it, friend? It, it's, it's a great achievement. 
to, to be recognised um, the World Golf Hall of Fame, people don't really understand how important it is in America. Maybe not so much in Europe, but it's, it's a great achievement. I'm not saying it should have been done before, but it's, he's, he's going to be there in September. And, and it, it's a great accolade. It's the icing on the cake. It's the finale for what we've all been working for. In a long journey, DJ. Yeah, absolutely. It's brilliant. Brilliant to finally get the recognition that he deserves in world golf, really. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Woozy, September. Yeah, looking forward to it. And, you know, yeah, as you say, it's been a long time coming, but. Uh, you know what now now it is going to happen you know started started thinking about the speech and speech and what i've got to say and everything but you know that'll just flow off the back of the uh, you know just it'll come naturally i think there's so many people to thank and you know, it's not about me it's about other people you know like my like my friends great to have them around you it's a, it's an emotional time i mean emotional i got it already <laughs> Well, it's nice to see you shedding a tear because you've put your heart and soul into this career. Uh, you're a true legend of the game and so many victories around the world and so many friends and so much effort has gone into it. And the little boy who grew up in Oswestry has become an icon of the Masters, has a special reservation in the Champions locker room, has that green jacket for life, and you are truly one of the all-time greats, was he? Well, it's like DJ said, why don't you put your green jacket on? I said, well, I don't really like to put the green jacket. He says, put it on. You deserve it. You absolutely do. David J. Russell, manager David Barlow, your friend Shane from Barbados, your mate Peter is here as well from uh, your, the UK, and uh, you've got your friends around you, and you've so many more friends here at the Masters. For all that you've given European and world golf, congratulations, and thanks very much for the time. Cheers. Thanks very much. You're listening to Shane O on the radio, which is a niche media production. Any and all unauthorised use or broadcast of the material contained herein will be in breach of copyright. <laughs>